after our pulse check, uh, this being a long weekend, um, Kamala and I have decided that if you'd like to hang out after the pulse check, you're welcome to come over to our house and uh, just hang out. So I have no idea what that'll look like, except I know there'll be some food. I know you can make s'mores. I know there'll be people young and old there. And uh, so if that fits in with uh, your life schedule, after the pulse check, you're welcome to come over. Could be that some of you are reaching out to somebody in your 8 to 15, and uh, more of a social context like that would be the easiest thing to invite them to. Why, just feel free. Say, uh, you can, they can either meet, meet you at our house at the end of the parking lot so it's easy to find, or you can go get them and bring them over. But feel free to invite uh, your 8 to 15 people and everybody else that you want to invite, and we'll trust the Lord to multiply food and space, and we'll just have fun together. Amen? Amen. Well, grab uh, a Bible, something with the Scriptures on it, and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, there's one in the pew in front of you, and there's the page number. We will be uh, celebrating and sharing the Lord's Supper together at at the end of our time together this morning. If you're unfamiliar with that, uh, this is in there. Uh, I will not do any real explanation as we move into that. And so, if you would, um, go ahead and just read through that so that you'll be prepared for that when we do get to it. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, and in those verses, uh, we see God in one sentence sum up what it means to be a Christian. It's one of the most amazing statements in all the Scriptures, so succinct. And and there it is that it tells us that it is God who is working in us. It is God who is working in us to give us His desires, His will, as well as the ability to do what He wants us to do. And our responsibility is to work that out, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that fear and trembling is not a fear and trembling that causes us to be scared and to move away from God. It's a fear and trembling that causes us to move towards God. It's a fear and trembling that causes us to understand that His gift of salvation to us is so full of all different aspects and dynamics that are all so good that we, like a kid at Christmas time, keep running back up to the Christmas tree saying, is there more? Is there more? Is there more? I don't want to miss out on any of this salvation that God has for me. Or maybe uh, an analogy that would work better for those of us that do our taxes is when you fill out your taxes, do you want to miss a single thing that would benefit you? No, there's a sense of fear and trembling. I don't want to miss out. That's the fear and trembling. That, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we don't miss out on anything that God is doing in us in changing our desires as well as uh, the, giving us the power and the energy to do what He's called us to do. Now, this follows that marvelous passage about the Lord Jesus Christ who, who humbled Himself to the point of becoming one of us and to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and the point is that Jesus did not have to work at this. He was God. And so 
He just did this naturally because of who he was and because of his attributes. He naturally held all of his rights and privileges with an open hand and trusted his father to look out for the interest of sinful people like you and me. He did that naturally. But guess what? It's not natural for us as people. It's not natural for any other person that's ever come into the human race. What's natural for us? Look at verses 3 and 4. What's natural for us is to be selfish, to figure out how I can get the honor. What's natural for us is to look out for our interest above and beyond and more than and be oblivious to other people's interests. That's what's natural for us. That's why God has to work in us. He has to work in us to give us His desires Desires like unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and to give us the power and the ability to do what He calls us to do, which Jesus could do. And our job is to work that out then. And that's one of the great mysteries of the Christian life, isn't it? He changes us from the inside out. He changes our desires, and He gives us the ability to do things that we could never do in our own power and strength. I became a Christian in 1974, and part of what happened when I became a Christian was all of a sudden, uh, alcohol had a different place in my life. The desire for alcohol had changed. The desire on how I was going to use my mouth changed, and no longer was there the foulness coming out of it. And it was just one of those gracious things that happened really early on. Now, there's lots of other stuff he's still working on. But I can remember going home to my mom and dad, and all of a sudden I wasn't drinking and having a drink with them. And all of a sudden my mouth had changed in what came out of my mouth. And because this all happened concurrent with me meeting Camilla, they assumed that I had changed because of Camilla. I didn't change because of Camilla. I changed because God was working in me. If I'd changed because of Camilla, I would have reverted back. But he just gave me those desires, and he gave me the power and the ability to do things that I had not been doing before. That's the Christian life. And, and that's what we continue to lay hold of. That's what we continue to work out all the days of our life. And that's the desire of a Christian is, man, I don't want to miss out on anything that this salvation has. I didn't just trust Jesus to get to heaven when I die. I mean, that's the big benefit, isn't it? I trusted Jesus to, to, to lay hold and enjoy everything that this salvation has in the here and now, day in and day out. And so you might say, well, how do you do that? Can you give me some specifics on how you do that? And I'm glad you asked, because that's what verses 14 and 18 are all about. Don't you love God? Don't you love the Spirit? Don't you love the Apostle Paul, who after laying out this succinct description of what it means to live out and grow in our salvation, he then tells us what we do and what God does in some specific examples. Now, let me just set it up this way. There's an old proverb that says, a vision without a plan is just a dream. A plan without a vision is just drudgery. But a vision with a plan can change the world, and we could change it to say, but a vision with a plan can change your life. 
It can change your relationships. It can change this church. It can change your neighborhood. It can change your classroom. And here's what you need to know about God. God has a vision for each one of our lives, and He has a plan. That's what He's working in us. But we need to know what our part of the plan is, because we have to work out that part of the plan. If we don't have a vision of what God is doing in us, what His vision for us is, what His plans are for us, then the Christian life is a bunch of drudgery. It actually just becomes a bunch of do's and don'ts and moral living. That's not what God has for us. But if we catch the the vision that God has for us in the plan, and we don't play our part in the plan, if we don't live out our part of the plan, then it's just a dream. And in these verses, 14 through 18, he does both of those things. Now, now this happens over and over in the Scriptures. Let me just tell you generally how it happens. Um, The vision and the plan of what God has for us is often found in what he calls us, our names, our titles, So, in other words, he calls us saints. That's how he began this letter, right? That tells you some of his vision and plan for each of our lives, right? He calls us ambassadors. What are some other things he calls us? Yeah, I know you weren't ready to participate, were you? (laughs) Children of God, sons of God, beloved. Yeah, that was in the verse there, wasn't it? He calls us a lot of things. When He gives those descriptions, that is to envision us of who we are and the plan of what He gets there. And there's lots of other adjectives that describe this. How do we know what our part is? It's found in the commandments. Remember last week we said, Paul encourages them in verse uh, 13 to obey, obey. How do we know what our part is? It's what He commands us to do. Now, in verses 14 through 18, we have commandments in 14, and we have two commandments in 18, and the in-between part is God's vision and plan for our lives. And so, if you want to know what God is up to in your life, we're going to see it in verses 15 down through verse 17. If you want to know what your part is, It's verse 14 and verse 18, what my part is. Let's first of all deal with the vision part. What is God doing in a Christian's life, and how does a Christian live their life? So what is God doing in a Christian's life? Verses 15 down through verse 17. Let me ask you to do something if you're taking notes right off the bat here. Just go ahead and put your name in there instead of Christian. Just go ahead and put your name in there. It's important that you see this about you. Now, it's generally true of all Christians, but it's important that you just make that application point right up in the beginning. What is God working into your life? And I'm just going to put the parts of the verse right up here on the PowerPoint. It begins by saying, you will prove, you will become, you will begin to be. Now, the word prove is in the New American Standard. Some of the other translations have, you will become, you will begin to be. What is God doing in your life? He's in the, in, in the process of causing you to become something, to become and move towards something. And so what's the first thing that's important for us to realize? This is a process. This is a process. He is working in us. 
It doesn't happen in a moment. It is very much a process. And what is the vision that He has for our lives? That we would be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach. And I put children of God in, uh, in bold there because that's actually the noun that describes who we are. We are children of God. The rest are just adjectives that describes what children of God are to look like. We are to be blameless, innocent, above reproach. You can see that those, those words kind of trip over each other and really kind of emphasize the same things. It seems that they're primarily emphasizing how we're viewed by other people, although certainly uh, being how we're viewed by God is most important, but being blameless seems to emphasize that when people look at us, there's not a lot of stuff or anything that they can criticize us for where we're inconsistent as a child of God, that we are innocent. Some translations even say harmless. I like the term harmless. In other words, we're harmless towards people around us. We don't hurt people, Christians and non-Christians. As children of God, we do not hurt people. So they don't look at us and say, blankety-blank, we don't hurt people, we are above reproach. Now remember, this is a process, But that's what God is up to. That's His vision for your life. That's His vision for my life, that I would be blameless, innocent, child of God, above reproach. Now, what's fascinating is this next phrase, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked means what? Crooked. It means not straight. I love the Bible and its simplicity, don't you? It means it's not straight. It, it means specifically uh, the way of God, blameless, innocent, above reproach, that's straight. Everything else is crooked and perverse. Uh, perverse can also be translated twisted. Uh, twisted. The, the, the word perverse or twisted is used of something that is made by an unskilled craftsman, and it turns out all messed up. It, it would be what would be used to describe a potter making a pot who is absolutely unskilled, and after he gets the pot all done, it looks like what I did in fourth grade. Only my mother kept that pot. I was going to bring it home, but I forgot to when I was up there this week. I mean, you look at it and think, why is that sitting on the shelf? That's the picture here. Uh, In the midst of a crooked, perverse generation, the people that are around us, the culture that is around us, that, uh, that makes fun of being blameless, innocent children of God who are above reproach, people who are absolutely opposed to God. Now, what do you notice about this? One of the things that just jumps out at me is that God is working in us, and He doesn't remove us from a very hostile environment. He, he, he leaves us in the midst 
of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, granted, he's talking to adults in the church at Philippi. They're first-generation Christians. All of us greatly benefit by hanging around people who are actually blameless, innocent children of God above reproach who can encourage us on that pathway. And that's the point of the Christian home. That's the point of a Christian marriage. That's the point of Christian friends. That's the point of the church. But he never says to withdraw and come out from being in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You don't have to. Why? Because it's God who's working in you. And as John said in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you're from God. For he who is in you is greater than what? He who's in the world. And so all hell may be breaking loose against you, but what? God is working in you, and he is greater than all of those forces combined. And in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he can cause me to be blameless, innocent children of God, a child of God above reproach. What do you say to that? I mean, hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a great God we serve, right? What a great, great God that we serve. And he goes on to say, not only will I do this in you, in the midst of this perverse and crooked world, but you're going to have an effect upon them among whom you appear as lights in the world. He says, as you let me work in you and you work that out, you will appear as lights in the world. This is not a command, by the way. This is just the byproduct. Now, Jesus commanded us to let our light shine. So we are commanded that other places. This isn't a command. He says, as you're, as you're just becoming blameless, innocent children of God above reproach, living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, hey, you're going to appear as lights in the world. The word lights is the word for stars. You're going to be luminaries of the living God, holding fast the word of life. Now, it could be taken as holding forth the word of life, it could go either way. And actually, if you got one, you got the other. But it seems in this context, holding fast the word of life is best. And this is actually a verb. It's not a command. But it, it talks about a person who, who has a regularity when confronted with the crooked, perverse ways of the world and the word of life, they hold fast to which one? The word of life. They hold fast to the word of life. They hold fast to God. They hold fast to the words that he has spoken. And don't you love the term word of life? For they bring life. And so this, again, is just holding fast to the word of life has a sense of regularity to it, even as our heart beats within our chest and gives life to our body. Holding fast to the word of life is the heartbeat of our life so that we continue to become blameless, innocent children of God above reproach. The 
it's probably encouraging to be reminded that every single person who has ever tried to follow God and follow the Lord Jesus Christ has lived in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, sometimes it may be worse than others, and that's part of what we grieve for in America. But you remember during Jesus' day, his crooked and perverse generation were very religious, moral people, but they had no room for Jesus. And after one particular teaching in John chapter 6, it says, many of those who were following began to grumble, and many left him. They turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. And so Jesus, when so many were leaving, he turned to the twelve, and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those disciples made the choice out of a recognition that Jesus alone had the words of life to hold to the words of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul's writing this to Philippians. They're very different than the culture that Jesus lived in and served in. They're a very Greek background, Roman city, and as such, they believed that everything in the Scriptures was foolishness. You'd be an idiot to believe the Bible. Oh, there's only one way to God? Who in the world could be so ignorant to believe that? Look around our cities. There's idols to all kinds of deities. They were mocked and ridiculed on every front for holding fast to the word of life and believing that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Lord and the Savior and the one to be followed. And that's true of us today. We're very much like the Philippians, aren't we? We live in the midst of a culture where if you choose to believe that there's one way and Jesus Christ is the way, you're going to be seen as all kinds of negative things. Hateful, all kinds of things. Arrogant. If you choose to believe the Scriptures, you're going to be labeled as ignorant, non-thinking. That's the perverse and crooked generation that we live in the midst of. What do we know? We know it's the words of life. And man, we hold to this. And we allow God to continue to help us to become blameless, innocent children of God above reproach. So that's what God is doing in our lives. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that's what God is doing in your life in the midst of what? A crooked and perverse generation. So the question then is, what should we be doing? What, how do we make sure that this is happening? How do we make sure that God's vision and plan for my life is being lived out? Well, well, Rogers is the one that said a vision without a plan is just a hallucination. How do we make sure that this isn't just some hallucination? Well, notice the command of verse 14. This 
Only God can get away with saying this to us this morning. Only God. Do, let's say it together. Do all grumbling or disputing. I mean, does that hit you between the eyeballs? Now, there's two really hard parts. Actually, the command is do all things without grumbling, and the disputing is added on to that because arguing or disputing is a result of grumbling. But there's two hard parts to this. The first thing is do what? Yeah. You know what God's trying to do? He's just trying to save us a lot of wasted energy in trying to figure out what should I obey and what don't I need to obey. He just says, don't spend any brain cells on that. If God commands it, what? Do it. And you might say, how can I do it? Oh, but who's working in you to do it? God is. There's no lack of ability to do it in Christ. And so it's kind of like Okay, how do I do this? First of all, whatever he says to do, whatever he commands to do, I just say what? Yes, Lord. May it be done to me according to your power and will. Whatever you want to say. But you just simply say yes. You don't say, that's too hard. You don't say, well, that's not as important as this. You don't say, well, that was meant for other people of another time, of another place. That's meant for my wife. That's meant for my kids. You don't say any of that. You just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then the attitude that we got to say that with, oof, without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling, in some translations, it's translated murmuring. Those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, this is what the Israelites did towards God. It was their main sin. Without grumbling, it means muttering under your breath or having side conversations where you're grumbling and complaining. Now, does everybody know what grumbling is from personal experience? Yeah, so I don't think I need to beat this horse anymore, right? We know what it is, and that leads then to disputing or arguing. And so we're to do all things without grumbling. And you notice God puts no wiggle room in here for us. Now, a couple things about how, how we can be encouraged to do this is notice what it follows. Notice what this command follows in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So God is working in me to give me the desires that he wants, and he's giving them power to do everything that he wants for his good pleasure. And then I'm going to grumble about it? Everybody say, ouch. Grumble. Mutter about it? Notice that it comes before the description that we're children of God. What he's saying is don't be grumbling, murmuring children who have a perfect father. Just don't do it. Grumbling is at best a distraction 
and just waste a lot of time and energy? <laughs> this just popped into my head. I hope this is, fits. We had a daughter who's music teacher one time playing violin, and she was crying because the teacher was getting on her. And the teacher said, stop it, you're wasting our time. <laughs> That's kind of what God's saying here. Knock off your grumbling. You're wasting time and energy. Just get on with it. It's, it's, it's just distraction at best to personally. And when you're murmuring, how does that affect the people around you? Whether you say it to them or not. Not pretty, right? What's that do to a church? What's that do to your light? Shining to people who are twisted and need compassion and everything else. And it's absolute disastrous at worst. John 6, they grumbled and many left. And that's Paul's concern for these believers in Philippi. It's his concern for us today. Now, grumbling is not grief. Grumbling is not the profound sense of loss. That is not grumbling. Grief is the real deal. And it's part of the way God made us to grieve over loss. Grumbling is not addressing wrongs so that they may be made right for the glory of God. You and I know what grumbling is. It's just that murmuring. But here, and it's not just here, but throughout the Scriptures, grumbling is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, impediment to working out in our lives what God is working in. Grumbling is basically an accusation towards God the Father that you don't love me, that you're not providing for me. When He gave His only begotten Son so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Murmuring and grumbling is basically saying, Jesus, you don't love me. Even though he held all of his divine privileges with an open hand and released them and become just like you apart from sin, and he was crucified to pay for your sins. Grumbling is a rejection that God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? It's because we forget he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. He will freely give us all things. And then putting verse 28 if after that all things, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes. Murmuring and grumbling is an attack upon God and his love and care for us. So what do we do besides when we can't grumble? Well, how about this? Go down to the command of verse 18, rejoice. There's other passages that say be grateful. But verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way, that's one command, and share your joy with me. So rather than grumbling and arguing with God or other people, 
How about rejoicing and sharing your joy with other people? Now, that's a novel thought. That sounds like it's God, right? Why? Because it's God who's working in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And this, again, is something that we find throughout the Scriptures, is it not? Especially when things aren't going the way we want them to go. James 1, count it all, what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a vision statement for you. This is what God's up to. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, that's what He's up to, and complete, lacking nothing, that you may be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach. And so James says, Take it out of the grumbling column, put it in the joy column, because God's up to stuff. He is working in you things that He alone can. Pastor and author Ken Ham, H.A. Kent says this, most Christians are able to do some things without complaint. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I can do that. It's when we are exhorted to be doing all things with a joyful spirit that the difficulty comes. Yet the outworking of our Christian faith in daily life lays this responsibility upon us. God gives us the desire to do that. God gives us the ability to count it all joy. That's what He calls us to do as believers And so grumbling is the greatest impediment, the Apostle Paul says, to our working out what God is working in, to our laying hold of all of what salvation means to us. Now, a couple questions for you this morning. One, it could be that you're here and you see this statement, children of God, and you say, I don't know that I'm a child of God. How would I know whether I'm a child of God? Well, here's the ABC. Has there been a point in your life where God showed you what a sinner you are, how much you've sinned against Him in thought, in word, and in deed, and you agreed with God and said, I'm a sinner? And then you understood that God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son, and that Jesus came, and He lived a perfect life, and He died on a cross to pay for your sins, to experience the wrath of God that you deserve, and He has become your substitute, thus He is your Savior. And have you agreed with God that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior? That's the A's. Agree about your sinfulness. Agree about God's gift and the perfection of Jesus as a Savior. Second, B, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your hands to every other belief system. Open your hands to every uh, trusting in yourself and what you can do and cling to Jesus Christ. Say, I believe upon you, Jesus, as my Savior, as my Lord. And C, confess. Confess it to God, begin confessing it to other people and saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. If that has happened, then you are a child of God. If that hasn't happened, you can do it right now.
And we'll give you a moment to do that, or you can just do it and not listen to anything else I say. That would be fine. For those of us who are children of God, we come to the Lord's table this morning, and actually those of you that will trust Christ right now, we come to the Lord's table this morning, and the thing that He wants us to deal with very clearly is, are we grumbling about anything? Is there any murmuring in my life? Because it's an attack on what this table makes so clear. For on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, and He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, He took the cup after supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I love you. I became a person and I allowed myself to be crucified and shed my blood so that you can live in the new covenant, always experiencing my love. Why would you ever grumble? And because we're all grumblers, coming to the Lord's table today is just a fresh opportunity to identify the grumblings, recognizing them as sin, and turning from them in the value and place, and putting in place the love of Christ and rejoicing that Christ is our Savior. He is our Lord. We have a Father who is in heaven who is for us. So, men, if you'd go ahead and prepare to serve us, let's go ahead and spend a few moments just quietly before the Lord as the men get ready to serve us. You can hold on to the bread and the cup. We'll all partake together in just a moment. But just in quietness, let's spend a few moments with our Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, would you exalt Christ in each of our hearts right now? Would you show us the beauty of who he is beyond anything we can comprehend? Would you help us to understand more of the incomprehensible love of Christ, the height and the depth, the length and the breadth of it? And Lord, would you put your finger on any particular grumblings or murmurings in our hearts so we can confess that sin, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. If you need to trust Christ as your Savior, now's the time just to have that conversation with Him. But would you just respond to the Spirit as the men pass these reminders of God's great love for us?